thank you this morning. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the truth of the words we've just been singing together. Thank you that you do make a way, Lord. This has been the story across salvation history, Lord, that you have made a way, Lord, for us to come into your very presence, great God. Thank you that you are true to all of your promises, great God, that you are a faithful God. And thank you for your great love for each and every one of us here this morning. I thank you for these moments as we share together around your word. And Lord, I want to pray for all of the kids and the young people heading out to their programs this morning as well. Lord, bless them as well. Lord, we long for them to know these truths in their own hearts as well. Lord, thanks for the dedication this morning that they would grow up knowing that you have a plan and a purpose for them. And so this is our prayer this morning. Come speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Please be seated. I want to add my welcome as well. It's so great to have you sharing with us at our eight o'clock service today. And... Uh, Somebody sent me this photo just recently, uh, which we'll put up on the screen, driving in Australia during summertime. How true is that? You wouldn't understand that if you're from somewhere else, but that is what it's like. Summer is here. Well, at least the summer heat is here. It's now arrived. And that means Christmas is just around the corner. We are now only four weeks away until our Christmas lights. Can you believe that? Four weeks till Christmas lights, five weeks until Christmas. And so over the next few weeks in the lead up to Christmas, we're going to be doing a series called He Came. We're going to explore four passages of scripture that actually explain exactly why Jesus came, why he stepped into the world that first Christmas and what his mission was, what his purpose was, and what this means for us, and what this means for our world as well. And so today we're going to begin by looking at a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading from verse 15. It'll come up on the screen behind, so you can follow along, or you can follow along in your Bibles or on your devices. But this is what it says. It says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world that first Christmas to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his younger protege, to Timothy. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. And here in verse 15, Paul makes it really clear. He captures the heart of the message of Christmas. And that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's it. Clear and, and very simple there for us. In 1988, Anissa Ayala was 16 years old when she was diagnosed with a very rare form of leukemia. And the doctors said to her that unless she had a bone marrow transplant, there was no way that she was going to survive. And unfortunately, her parents weren't a match with her and her brother wasn't a match with her. And they looked around everywhere else and they couldn't find anyone else to be a match for her. So her parents, who were now in their 40s, decided that they would try and have another child with the hope that maybe this child that was born would be a, a match for their daughter, Anissa. And to their great delight, it was determined this new baby, Marissa, was actually a match. 
And so at 14 months of age, they, they took some of Marissa's bone marrow and they transplanted it to her older sister, Anissa, and she was able to make a full recovery from, from leukemia, which was amazing. And both sisters lead a healthy lives today. I think we've got a photo of them, in fact. Time magazine have done an article around this. And in a very real sense, Marissa was born into the world to save her sister's life. She says these words, she says, without me being a perfect match for my sister, she would not be here today. And just like Marissa, Jesus was born into this world for the express purpose of saving us, of saving you and and saving me. And the Bible says that we all have a sickness that ultimately leads to death and the sickness that we have is sin and that he, Jesus, is the only one who can save us. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he uh, was really scared and fearful. This was scandalous. He knew it would bring great shame on him and on his family, and he didn't know what to do. But in the midst of his fear, an angel appeared to him in a dream and said these words, said, Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because, here it is, because he will save his people from their sins. There it is again, the reason for Christmas, the reason for the miracle of the incarnation. Later in Jesus' ministry, he would call Matthew the tax collector to be one of his followers, one of his disciples, and Tax collectors in in that day were considered corrupt and despised by everyone. And um, Jesus, though, decides to call Matthew, this tax collector, as his follower. And and Matthew holds a party at his house when this takes place. He's overjoyed. He invites other tax collectors, others who are on the outside of society, the outsiders. And then when the religious leaders of the day saw this party that was going on, they said this. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means, Jesus said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, is what he said. This is his mission. This is why he came. In Matthew 11, we read that Jesus was given the title, friend of sinners, When this title was given to Jesus, this was meant to be a slight against him. But in fact, this was the very reason he came, right from the outset. This was his purpose. This was his mission. He came into the world to save sinners. Nabil Qureshi uh, was a Muslim convert to Jesus Christ, and he had a resolutely Muslim friend named Saha who was attracted to parts of Christianity but couldn't accept the idea of God becoming a human being. She thought, how could this be possible? On one occasion, she honestly asked Nabil, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and that he had to use the bathroom? Aren't these things below, beneath God, is how she thought in her mind. And Qureshi affirmed her questions and then asked her one in return. He said, Saha, let's say that you're on your way to a very important ceremony and you're dressed up 
in all of your finest clothes. You're about to arrive just on time to your appointment, to the ceremony. But then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Would you let her drown and arrive looking dignified or rescue her but arrive at the ceremony covered in mud? Well, her response was very matter-of-fact. Of course, I would jump in the mud and save her. Nuancing the question more, Qureshi asked her, let's say there are others with you. Would you send someone else to save her? Or would you save her yourself? And she responded without hesitation. If it's, she's my daughter, how could I send anyone else? They would not care for her like I do. I would go myself definitely. And Qureshi said, well, if you being human love your daughter so much that you're willing to lay aside your dignity to save her, how much more can we expect God, if he is our loving father, to lay aside his majesty to save us? And the biblical story of God eventually won Sahara's heart, Sahar's heart, the message of God's selfless love. It overpowered her when she understood the fullness of it and she could no longer remain a Muslim. She accepted Jesus as her saviour. But this is the message of Christmas. That God, that Jesus would leave all the glory of heaven, the perfection of heaven, that he would step down into the mess of human history, that he would step down into the brokenness and the hurt and pain of this world with a mission. That mission was to save us, to rescue us. You know, a lot of people think, well, Jesus came and, and he was this great teacher. And Jesus was a great teacher. He was the greatest teacher the world has ever seen. A lot of think, people think, well, Jesus came and he was this great moral example for us to follow. And he was the most amazing moral example. He lived a perfect life. But that was not his mission and purpose. His mission and purpose, the reason he came into the world was to save sinners. Max Licardo records in one of his books a letter that he received once, and it said these words. It said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But since our greatest need was forgiveness... God sent us a saviour. Billy Graham said these words. He said, the very purpose of Christ coming into the world was that he might offer his life as a sacrifice for the sins of men. He came to die. That is the heart of Christmas. And so Paul says to Timothy and to us, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the message of Christmas. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, of whom I am the worst. And people ask a, a lot of questions around this verse. A lot of Bible scholars read this and go, what, is, what exactly did Paul really mean here? What was he really thinking when he said, I am the worst of sinners? Was he just projecting some sort of false humility here? Was he just some sort of pious exaggeration when he said, I'm the worst of sinners? Is that what he was doing here? 
Well, in the book of Acts, we see how intense Paul's hatred was towards Christ and his followers. He zealously persecuted Christians. Last Sunday night, Pastor Jihad, who was here with us, he said that Paul, he was preaching on Paul's conversion, he said Paul would have been the equivalent of like a modern day um, member of ISIS. That's what he would have been like in the day. And we read in Acts that what he was like, exactly what he was like in Acts 8 verse 3. It says Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. And then in Acts chapter 9, we read, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. Every breath he had, he was uttering out these threats and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And Paul really was, in so many ways, the most unlikely candidate uh, for someone to, to come to Christ, to place their faith and trust in Christ. This is the kind of person that no one expects to be converted. His opposition is too deep, too articulate. So much of his life would be threatened if Christianity were true. He had taken such a public stand that if it would be utterly humiliating for him to change his mind and support everything that he had fought so hard against. And that is why Paul goes on to say here in verse 16, he says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example, he said, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So what Paul is saying here is on, the, on one hand, what Paul is saying here, his conversion was to serve as an example for us that God's patience is immense, he says. His patience is immense and that no one is beyond God's reach. I want you to get hold of this this morning. Even the most unlikely people can come to faith and do come to faith. God's mercy and power are, are not limited to people who have been set up for Christianity by a good family or a church association or a clean moral track record. Paul says, my conversion is proof that not one single person is beyond God's reach. He's saying here, if God can reach me, God can reach anyone. And we heard from Pastor Jihad last week that that it's true that ISIS members are coming to faith in his very church through the, the work, through the power of the Holy Spirit as the message of Jesus and his love and grace is being shared. And Paul's words here are meant to be an encouragement to some this morning. For some of you, I know you've been praying for family members and friends for a long time and maybe you've been wondering, is this person beyond God's reach? Maybe, I know for some of you, you've been praying for decades, for 10, 20 plus years for people, longer than that for some people. And you, maybe your faith is beginning to wane, thinking, God, can this person really be reached? Maybe you're praying for a son or a daughter or a mom or a dad. And you look at their life circumstances, you look at the things they're involved in, they seem so far from God, and you have been wondering if there is hope. Your faith has been beginning to wane. Well, God wants to encourage you this morning. He wants you to see this morning that not one person is beyond God's reach. Even the most unlikely people from our perspective are, are objects of God's love and objects of his grace because of his immense patience, Paul says, and his saving power. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, there is no way that God could love and accept me because of my past, because of the things I have done. 
You might be thinking to yourself, Nathan, if you knew my story, if you knew my history, there is no way God could accept me. Well, Paul's testimony is to encourage you this morning as well. God's grace and love is sufficient for you. You can know a transformed life just like Paul. No matter what your story or past might be, nobody is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond his love and his saving power. You need to know that this morning. So that's the first thing when we look at Paul's story. We see that there is hope for us. And we see there is hope for the people we long to see come to faith in Christ. But there's a second part to what Paul is saying here. When he says, I am the worst of sinners, at a deeper level, he's talking about coming to a full understanding of the depths of sin in our own hearts. You see, Paul couldn't know for sure. There's no way he could possibly know for sure that he was the worst of sinners, could he? There's no way. He had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all the inhabitants of the earth and then compared his record to their record. There was no way he could really know for sure that he was the worst of sinners. But in his heart, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he had come to an understanding of the depths of his sin. In his heart, as far as he was concerned, he knew he was the worst of sinners. I read a quote recently from a pastor named Jean Leroux. This is what he wrote. He said, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. It's a bit of a confronting quote, isn't it? If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. This is at the heart of what Paul is saying here as well. John Stott says the following about this verse. He says, When we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons with other people. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he couldn't conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul means here when he says, I am the worst of sinners. The Spirit of God has revealed it to us. Often we try to minimize the sin in our lives. Often we compare ourselves with others and we think, well, I'm not that bad. But no, when the Spirit of God reveals the depths of our sin in our hearts, we realize. We realize that we are the worst of sinners. Jesus makes the same point when he tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. He says these words to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. He said, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, Paul got it. He understood the depths of his sin. He had stopped comparing himself to others. That's why he says here, I am the worst of sinners. I came across this image a little while back, which captures this parable and our response to Jesus. Here it is. We can either hang on the door of our lives 
I'm clean enough. Please don't disturb. Or I'm a right mess. Come on in. Kyle Alderman tells the following story. He says, I remember writing a paper about this passage 1 Timothy 1.15 when he was in seminary. And he says, my paper focused on Paul's past before he became a Christian. I made the case that Paul describes himself as the worst of sinners because he had been a persecutor of Christians and did everything he could do to destroy the church and the cause of Christ. And when my professor returned the paper to me, there was no grade at the top of the page. Instead, in red ink, he had written, rewrite. I wasn't sure what the problem was. He hadn't made any notes in the margin to help me understand why I needed to start over on the entire paper. After class, I went up to his desk hoping to get a little feedback. Then he took out his red pen and he circled one word from 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. I waited for a moment, expecting him to expound, but he had already moved on to the next student. I stood there staring at that one word, am. Suddenly I realized what I had missed. The verb am is present tense and that changed everything. Paul didn't say, I was the worst of sinners. He said, I am the worst of sinners. If you were to hook me up to a lie detector test, he says, and ask me, do you think you're the worst sinner? I would probably say yes, because I'm so sinful, I'll try and make myself seem even more spiritual by sounding as humble as possible, but I'm fairly certain the polygraph machine would reveal the truth. If I'm honest deep down, probably not even that deep, I don't consider myself the worst of sinners. But I can tell you, the more I learn about the righteousness of God, the more I examine my own life and motives, the closer I'm getting to the inescapable conclusion that I am the worst sinner I know. And if we look at Paul's testimony across his life, we see that this is his journey as well. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, which was written around AD 57, Paul calls himself the least of all of the apostles, is what he says. I'm the least of the apostles. But then in Ephesians 3.8, written about AD 60, a few years later, he now says, I, I, I describes himself as less than the least of all the saints. And when he says saints here, he just, that was the word for Christians. I'm the least, um, less than the least of all the Christians now, he's saying. And then he comes to 1 Timothy 1.15, about AD 63, a few years later again, and now he calls himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. Do you see this progression that Paul is having here of, of Christian humility? The godliest saints are those who are most conscious of, conscious of their own sinfulness. The closer we come to God and His holiness, the more we become aware of our own need for Him, our own sinfulness in our lives. But on the flip side of that, the more joy-filled we become. You need to know this. We become more joy-filled because we understand in greater measure the amazing depths of God's grace and love and forgiveness that he has shown to us. Jesus explained that the one who has forgiven much loves much. And that is why here Paul just breaks out in this spontaneous worship in verse 17 with this great doxology that he expresses here. He says, now to the king eternal, he just can't hold it back when he realizes this truth. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It sort of breaks from the flow of the text. It's just because it's a response from his heart. 
because he realizes how great God's love is towards him, how great his grace is, how great the forgiveness that he has shown to him. And it's the same for us when we take hold of this truth in our own lives. It fills us to overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude and joy. And we can't help but want to worship him. And we can't help but want to share this good news with others. His love and his grace compels us. When we realize that Jesus Christ knows the worst about us, nonetheless, he is the one who loves us most. When we get hold of this, this is our response. And we realize our assignment isn't to show others how good we are. Our assignment is to show others how good God is. Amen? That's our assignment, isn't it? So this is the meaning of Christmas. This is the mission of Christmas. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. We're all in the same boat. And he came on a rescue mission and he is still on that rescue mission today, meeting people at their point of of need, transforming lives by his grace and love. No person is beyond his reach. And over the next four weeks, five weeks as a church, we're going to have this incredible opportunity to be part of his mission. And I want to encourage you to be full of faith and be expectant about what God wants to do, longs to do over these next few weeks. And I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you opportunities to invite others, to ask him to put people on your heart, to pray with faith and expectancy, to be open to the leadings and the promptings of the Holy Spirit over these next few weeks. This week, we have 48 young adults, as Trish mentioned, down there at Gold Coast, serving with red frogs, looking after the schoolies down there. Um, Pastor David is actually going to be sharing the message at the schoolies church service on Thursday night. Normally around 600 plus schoolies come along to that service. I know he would so value your prayers for him sharing that on Thursday night, if you'd pray for him, church, in that. One of the young adults was really keen to go to Red Frogs, but wasn't sure how she would fit it in around her study and her practice she had to do as a nurse. But she prayed to God and asked God if God would give her an opportunity to be able to head down there. A few weeks later, she sent through the following message to Pastor David. This is what she wrote. She said, just a cool story for your Tuesday morning. Long story short, I was talking to my facilitator the other day at PRAC, and she reminded me, I totally forgot, that I have to do 40 hours of community engagement with vulnerable women and children. Anyway, I told her I was keen to do Red Frogs. And she was like, no. Don't think that will count because it's just involved with the church, blah, 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 is how the person sent the message through. She said, you can talk to the head of midwifery about it, but I doubt she will let you because she is stricter than me. Anyway, I just met with the head of midwifery and told her about it, and she was instantly like, yes, do red frogs. They legit saved my daughter's life. And then she was raving about it. Yeah, praise God. And then she was raving about it for like 10 minutes. I feel like she was affirming me for doing it the whole time. And then she was, she was like, I just don't understand you guys who do it. Like who would pay money to clean people's rooms and vomit? And we were able to have that awesome chat. How cool, she wrote. How good is that church? Praise God. Isn't that incredible? Praise God. You see, this is God's heart. This is the message of Christmas. Jesus came into the world for this very purpose. And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. 
He says we get to be a part of his rescue mission. On Tuesday, just gone, we held a service of thanksgiving here for Robbie Foster. And Robbie was a part of our church here for the past um, nearly 20 years, in fact. And sadly, he passed away suddenly just recently, just in the last couple of weeks. And Robbie had a bold faith. It's one thing about Robbie, an incredibly bold faith. He was always expectant. He was always faith-filled for God's plans to reach many. And I was, as I was preparing um, for Robbie's funeral, I remembered a personal sto- story that I'd actually forgotten about when Robbie spoke words to encourage me personally and actually spoke words into the life uh, of this church. When we sensed God calling us as a church to build, uh, to make more room and build a new auditorium, we began drawing up plans for, the, for a 1,000-seat auditorium. This was a massive undertaking. It was very daunting for me. Brand new senior pastor at the time. I was thinking, wow, how are we going to do this? What's this going to look like? A thousand seat auditorium. But we dropped the plans. We presented them to the church. And I've shared with you a couple of times that it was after Easter. Around this time, I was away on a short break with the family. I was reading a book about hearing from God. And as I was reading the book, I sensed God saying to me that the new auditorium wasn't big enough. And I was thinking to myself, not big enough, it's a thousand seeds, that's plenty big enough. And then I realized I hadn't done my Bible reading that day, and I opened my Encounter with God Bible notes, and the head of my reading notes was, how big is your church? God had my attention in that moment. The reading, Ephesians 1, Paul's prayer for the church, I want to remind you of those, even those who have heard this, remind you again, is what God said to us, consider how different is Paul's prayer for the church, it's about becoming large-minded churches, preoccupied with God's future plans, we should always be half glass full about the church, when a church concentrates only on its immediate needs, it's in danger of missing out on God's future for the church, then the final words were these, reflect on what difference it makes to pray with this big vision for your own local church. As I said before, I I really sensed the Spirit of God was speaking in that moment. But I've never shared the second part of that story. I'd forgotten about it until Robbie's funeral. The following Sunday, I came back to church here, and God knew that I needed some further strengthening, further affirmations. I was thinking, bigger church, I don't know if I can do that, God. I don't know if we can do that. That just seems too big a task. The following Sunday, I was back at church in the 8 a.m. service. A man man came up to me who was visiting from New Zealand. He had never been to our church before, and he came up to me after the service. He just said, I just want to let you know that I think God has told me to tell you that you need to make that new auditorium bigger than it is. I said, okay, thanks for passing that on. (laughs) And then at the 10 a.m. service, the 10 a.m. service, Robbie came up to me in the welcome. He said, Nathan, it's not big enough. I said, what do you mean, Robbie? What's not big enough? He said, the new auditorium. He said, it's not big enough. It needs to be bigger because God has a plan to reach a lot of people and we need to make it bigger. And I said with great comments to Robbie, I said, Robbie, you are right. You're right. God used Robbie to affirm to me. I'm like a Gideon. God had to encourage me again and again and again. Yes, this is it. But I speak that again to encourage you, church. Robbie had a bold faith. He was expectant. He knew, he sensed deep in his heart that God had a plan to reach many more people in this community. He believed that. And I know one of Robbie's greatest joys was to actually be able to come into this auditorium and to worship in here, to see the extra space that God has given to us. Although secretly, I think he wished it was even bigger than it is. Secretly. I think he was hoping for like a 5,000 seater or something, I think. But Robbie was full of faith. 
And in the same way, I believe this too. As Robbie believed God had a plan to reach many more people in our community, I believe this as well. Because of the way God has spoken right across the history of our church, because of the way he's spoken into this auditorium, because we are here, we have more space, we've got a balcony yet to fill. There are spare seats, seats that you have bought and prayed for people to come. And in this Christmas season, I want you to pray with faith and expectancy. I want you to open your hearts to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Say, God, I want to be available to offer an invitation Imagine for a moment what would take place if each and every one of us just prayed for someone. Prayed that God would give us an opportunity to invite someone else that would come along. As we close this morning, I want to give us an opportunity to respond to this message. And Alpha have recently produced these great prayer cards. And it's a prayer for people in our life that we'd long to see come to faith in Christ. And on it, it actually has three spaces on there, just to write the names of three people that you'd like to pray for. It says, write their names down. And then it says, set an alarm for 11.02 a.m. as a reminder to pray for them daily. And 11.02 is a reference to Luke 11.2, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. And then it says, be open then and expecting to see how God might use you. And we used these at our Bridgeworld conference last weekend. I thought, how good would it be to get us to do this as a whole church? Imagine if, if many of us here this morning put names of three people down, began praying, open, expectant, the Spirit of God's work, focusing on this Christmas season, imagine what God might want to do among us over this season. And so as we close this morning, we're going to have an opportunity to do that. Down the front, I've got these cards, and you can just come and write the names of three people. Just ask God to put the names of those three people on your heart that you want to pray for. And then keep this card with you. Set that alarm for 11.02. Just pray daily. Be open to what God might want to do. And we can be expectant, church, because this is God's heart. He is already at work in people's hearts and lives. This is the reason he came. This is the message of Christmas. So will you pray with me as we come now to respond to God's word to us this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your words of truth. We thank you for this incredible message of Christmas that you stepped down into the mess of human history, that you came, left all the glory of heaven, you stepped into the brokenness and pain of this world and you had a mission, great God. Your mission was to save sinners like us, great God. You came to rescue us. And so this morning we know, Lord, that you are at work. This is your heart, that not one person is beyond your reach, great God. And so this morning we want to pray with faith, respond in faith, particularly into this Christmas season, Lord that you would use us as your people. We thank you for the space you've given us. This is our first Christmas in this new auditorium, first Christmas with our expanded facilities, Lord. More space than ever before to welcome the crowds. And so we want to pray with expectancy, Lord. That's all you want to do. We want to be full of faith. And so we pray this now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Why don't we stand together as we do this now? Let's stand in response. And there's tables down the front, on the sides as well. You come, write the names of those you want to pray for. There's our Christmas flyers have just released too. You can take them as an invitation card. They're down the front as well. Just arrived yesterday. Let's respond as we worship our great God. Let's put our hands together as we praise God. Thank you for that. And now to the King Eternal, Immortal, invisible and the only God be honor and glory forever and ever and everybody said
Amen, amen. Please be seated if you'd like prayer. Some of our prayer team will be down the front here. They'd love to pray for you this morning. If you haven't had a chance yet to come and write the names of some people, you feel free to do that as well. And do stay for a tea and coffee in the courtyard. God bless. Thank you.